I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon text this morning. We're going to look together as we continue our series on biblical reformed worship. We're going to look this morning at Paul's first letter to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we are going to read together as our starting point for our sermon today. Chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. I'll ask you to please stand as we read together Holy Scripture. This is God's holy word for us, His people. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. This is God's holy word for us today. Let's ask him to bless our time in his word. Almighty God, we have lifted up our voices to you today in prayer. We have opened up our mouths and spoken to you in praise and song. And now, God, we ask that you would give us ears to hear and a quietness of heart and an openness of mind and a readiness for you to open your mouth and speak to us. May I fade away and may your word take center stage. May you step forth and show yourself to us from your scriptures, from your word today, and let us hear a word from you. For you, O Lord, have the words of eternal life. Where else could we go? Speak to us today, we pray. Write your truth upon our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we carry on this morning with our series on reform or biblical reformed worship. Last week, we explored the biblical and theoretical basis of what our tradition calls the regulative principle of worship. And we dove deep into Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 9, where Jesus clearly teaches the regulative principle and gives us the proper model for how to balance God's commands and human traditions when we apply the regulative principle in crafting our worship services. And from Matthew 15, we discovered three categories that underlie the regulative principle. To summarize, here's what they were from last week. First was commands. Commands is simply what God explicitly tells us to do. Second is customs. These are the local rules that we are free to make for us, for ourselves, but we cannot demand others follow those rules as though, as though they were sinning if they didn't agree with us. So the customs are... We are free to say, our team, our group, we have these rules that we're going to follow. And if you're going to be a part of us, we have these rules. But it's not a sin if you have different rules or don't follow ours. They're binding for us, but not for everybody else. Customs. 
commands and customs. And then number three was circumstances. These are that big, wide swath of questions about when and where and in what order we do things. Commands, customs, and circumstances. These three categories form a model for how we can now apply that to worship. Crafting a worship service using these three categories. So if I translate these three categories into the reform doctrine of the regulative principle of worship, it sounds like this. First is the elements of worship. This corresponds to the commands. The elements of worship are those central acts of worship that are commanded by God. Second is forms. The forms of worship. This corresponds to customs. The forms of worship are the mode and the manner of how we do those elements. And I gave the example of prayer. Prayer is commanded by God in worship. We have to do that when we worship. We have to pray. That's what God wants us to do when we worship. He wants us to pray. But then we have the question of what kind of prayer. That's the mode. What kind of prayer should we offer? There are lots of different kinds of prayer. Prayers of adoration, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of confession, supplication, intercession, on and on it goes. There are lots of different modes of prayer, kinds of prayer we could offer. Which ones should we offer? And then the manner is... Once we've decided we're going to pray this form of prayer, this kind of prayer, now how should we then go about actually saying the words and praying it when it's time to do church? And the examples are you could have a prayer that's 100% written out word for word and you just read it for your prayer verbatim. Or you could have maybe a bullet point list and I'm going to pray for these three things, but the exact wording, I'm just going to sort of freestyle it when I get up there. Or it could be not prepared at all. You could just say, all right, I'm, I've been asked to pray today, and I'm just going to, I don't know what I'll say. I'll discover it the same time you do, because I haven't thought about it beforehand. I'll just start praying. Purely extemporaneous. Those are the different manners of prayer, how you do the prayer, how you deliver the prayer. The form is what kind of prayer are you praying. Now, we can ask those questions of forms of every element of worship. What's the mode and what's the manner? This is how we do things in our church. That church does it that way. That church does it that way. That denomination has their own sort of forms that they follow. And these are the customs that we have for, as Presbyterians or as this particular church. And it might be different than that church or that church or that church. So they're locally binding because we do it here. But we're not going to tell that church, you're sinning if you don't do it our way. Right? So we have elements which corresponds to commands. We have forms, which corresponds to customs. And then third, circumstances. This category stays the same. The elements of worship, the forms of worship, and then the circumstances. This has to do with the place where we worship, what time we worship, what order we do the things in when we worship, who does the things in worship, etc., etc., etc. Can we use electricity? Can we use microphones? Can we use instruments? If so, what kind? Are we only supposed to sing with our voices? All these sorts of issues. Which way should I be facing during communion? Like, there's a hundred different questions. These are all circumstantial to how we perform a worship service. And the regulative principle categorizes them so that we can think through intelligently how the Bible regulates all three. And that's the main thing we want to say. These categories form a spectrum from most fixed, the elements, to most free in our worship. Fixed worship and free worship. 
The elements are fixed. God tells us, do this, and you just read it and then go do it. But then circumstances is the most free and has the most room for diversity. But no matter where you are on that spectrum, from totally fixed to completely free, no matter where you are on the spectrum, all three categories, all the elements, all the forms, all the circumstances, must be biblical. They must be according to Scripture. That's what the regulative principle says. God gets to tell us how He wants us to worship, and He does that by telling us in His Word. So we just let His Word have full sway over all three of those categories. All of it's going to be biblical. All of it's going to be based on Scripture. Regulative principle worship, or biblical reformed worship, is worship based on the whole counsel of God so that God gets the final say in how we worship. All right, that's last week. Now that we have the regulative principle unpacked and sort of its theoretical basis... You might be delighted to know we've now finished laying the groundwork for how we should craft our worship services. There's a lot more theory to it than you might have thought. Well, this morning, it's time to actually start putting together a biblical worship service. Today, we're going to look at the elements of worship, that first category, the things God commands us to do in worship. And next week, we'll look at the forms and the circumstances and how God regulates those things in His Word, how we should go about basing our traditions on God's Word. But for today, we're looking just at the elements. So let's turn to our passage and let's get started. How many of you remember when you were in school, either going to a class or hearing about a class offered that was called Home Ec? Yeah, Home Ec. Now today, that class is ridiculed as Women's Work 101, right? <laughs> but actually, it's still offered in some places. And it's not called home ec anymore. Today it's called family and consumer science, which sounds way better. Family and consumer science. But it used to be called home ec, which was short for home economics. Home economics, which was a class about home and household management, learning the skills to run an adult home. Today we call it learning how to adult, adulting figuring out what it means to run a home like a civilized, tax-paying human being. Now, those, this class includes seven different skill areas you need to know in order to run a good home. So it involves cooking, child development, number two. Third, education and community awareness. Number four, home management and design. Five, sewing and textiles. Six, budgeting and finance. And finally, number seven, health and hygiene. You learn the basic skills in these seven areas. You'll be a successful adult. You'll have a normal home that you'll be not embarrassed to invite people over to. Now, it was called economics because it was meant to teach you how to run an orderly home. 
But, you know, today, if we're not used to what that class is, like first time I ever heard about it, I just thought it was a class about, you know, finance, how to budget your household finances, right? Home economics. So that's what economics is about, right? It's about money and spending. We usually think of the word economy that way, as a term for the money and banks and prices and businesses and trade and jobs and employment and spending of a state or a country. But economy actually comes from a Greek word. And it means roughly the law of the house. The law of the house. And what we did in English, like we do so many times, is we take a, we take a nice word in another language, and we don't bother translating it, we just turn it into an English word. That's not translating, that's transliterating, which means you take a Greek word, you change the Greek letters to English letters, and say, voila, an English word. But you haven't translated it. And so that's what we did with the word economy, right? Oikonomia. You, you can almost hear it. Oikonomia. Economy comes right into English. We just swapped out some letters and said, hey, it's English, but we didn't translate it. It roughly means the law of the house. Economics, in other words, is really all about how you run the place, whether that place is a home or a nation. And hence, home economics, how, you, how your home is organized and arranged how it's supposed to run, and who does what. So every home has this, whether it's chaotic or incredibly like a well-oiled machine, every home has its way of doing things. It's sort of order of operations. We do, we do groceries this way. We go out to eat this night. We do dishes this way. So-and-so cooks, then I do dishes. And it, it, whatever it is, every home has its sort of organizational pattern. And that's your economy for your home. That's your home economics. In our passage this morning, Paul tells Timothy that this letter is meant to be a syllabus of God's home ec class. Look at what he says. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. Paul says to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now this language, how one ought to behave, if we translate it a little more literally, it says, I want you to know how it is necessary or how it is required to conduct yourself in God's house. Paul is teaching God's home economics. Here's how you should do things in my house. Not just your house, Timothy, but when you're in my house, here's how things should run. Now, what is God's house in 1 Timothy? Well, remember the first sermon of this series, John chapter 4. Jesus says to the woman at the well that neither in this mountain in Samaria nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In other words, God's house is no longer under the new covenant confined to a locality, to a, to a sacred temple or a shrine or a sanctuary or a tabernacle or a holy spot on earth. 
It's no longer confined to if you want to worship God, you have to go to a special place to do it. Now we can worship God. We can approach Him, not from this mountain or that mountain, but everywhere. And once the whole earth comes to worship the Lord together, then Isaiah's prophecy will be fulfilled that the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, where all of us with bended knee and open mouth worship Him. In every land, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, all worships Him. That's what's coming. And, it's, and we're actually participating, you and I right now, we are participating in filling the earth with His glory as we come week after week to worship. God's house isn't tied down, though, to this structure, this building, this beautiful building that we're very thankful for. Don't make the mistake of thinking we have to be in here in order for God to be worshipped the way He wants to be worshipped. God's house isn't the structure or the building. The house, Paul says, is... The house of God is the gathered church. The assembly of God's people. Look what he says. How one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. The assembly of God's people. That's the church. The congregation. The congregation. The people. The organization and, and arrangement and the laws for conducting the activities of the congregation. That is church economics. How we're supposed to live and function and operate as a people together. Not just what we're supposed to do in a certain building. An hour or so once a week but how we should live our lives with one another. And of course, this has application not just to a worship service, but to the whole life of our church. Everything we do together, we're in God's house, and we should operate His way since we're guests in His house. I don't come over and to your house and demand that you do things the way I do at my house. That would be silly. So we don't do that to God. We come into God's house on God's terms, and we let it run the way he wants it to run. And when God's house is ordered and is operating the way he says to do it in Scripture, the church is, as Paul says, a pillar and buttress of the truth. When we are being the church God calls us to be, we are the ground and support of God's truth, upholding his word in this world when everything else is shaking and seems to give way. We're supposed to be that pillar in God's house that stands firmly grounded, firmly secure, immovable and strong, holding up God's truth, a pillar and support of that truth, holding it high so when everything else disappoints and falls away and misleads, God's truth stands firm. God's Word stands firm. And why? Because we are designed by God as His church to uphold it. But we can't do that if we're not being the church He's called us to be and doing the things He's called us to do in the way He commands us to do them. So 1 Timothy, really, as well as 2 Timothy and Titus, the other pastoral epistles we call them, and really all of Paul's letters where he tells the church, here's what God wants you to believe and here's what God wants you to do, 
all of these letters from Paul really are church ek manuals. And they include rules for worship. So as we move into the rest of the sermon, let's start here in 1 Timothy and then branch out to the rest of Paul. And let's start looking for the elements of worship. Those things, those central acts of worship that God commands us to do. Now fortunately, you'll be relieved to know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel this morning. It, it would be, it would take us, you know, the rest of the year in sermons to go around all the different verses and all the different books of the Bible and find all the little places where Scripture tells. We don't have to go through and scour the Scriptures on Sunday mornings together in order to figure out uh, what God wants us to do because our governing document, the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 21, it tells us what the elements of worship are so we know what we're looking for this morning. We know where to go and what to look for. Those English, Puritan, and Scottish Presbyterian theologians back in the 1640s when our confession was written, they've already done all that hard legwork for us. So our confession, Westminster Confession, chapter 21 in section 3 and 5, it outlines for us the elements of worship. And, it, start, and it, it sorts them into these two categories. It sorts them into the ordinary elements of worship and the occasional elements of worship. And what do these words ordinary and occasional mean? Ordinary. Ordinary here means that these elements should be part of the typical, regular worship of the church week after week. These elements should normally and typically and ordinarily characterize what our worship looks like week in and week out. That's ordinary. The second, occasional. The word occasional here means these elements ought to be included from time to time at the least, though they don't have to be done with the same frequency as the ordinary elements. So ordinary elements, you should be doing these pretty much every Sunday. There's some leeway, but, but for the most part, every Sunday you ought to be doing these. Occasional means at the least you should do these once in a while and sometimes, but you can do them far more frequently. You're just not required to do them as frequently. Do them at least a little while, a few times, but do them more if you want, just like in tithing. You know, the minimum is 10%, but you don't have to stop at 10. <laughs> give us 20, give us 50. You know, you, could, you can give above 10, but the minimum's 10. That, that's the idea here. You should do these a minimum of once in a while, but you're free to do them more if you want. That's what the confession's getting at. Ordinary elements of worship and occasional elements of worship. So these will be our, our, two, our next two points of our sermon. We'll look first at ordinary, and then we'll finish by looking at the occasional. So, point two, the ordinary elements of worship. The confession of faith gives us five. And so I'm going to cite them from the confession, and then we'll see where they are in the Bible. So that you can see, as well as I can, this is what God wants us to do. It's right there on the page of the Bible. 
So the first one that the confession mentions is in, chap- is in chapter 21, section 3, and it's prayer. Listen to what the confession says about prayer. I put this one first because they put it first, and they emphasized it more than they did the others. Look what it says. Prayer, with thanksgiving, being one special part of religious worship, is by God required of all men. And that it may be accepted, it is to be made in the name of the Son, by the help of His Spirit, according to His will, with understanding and reverence and humility and fervency and faith and love and perseverance. And, if vocal, if you pray out loud, in a known tongue, in a known language. So that's what the confession says about prayer in worship. That first part I want to underline. Prayer with thanksgiving being one special part of religious worship is by God required of all men. Prayer is a most special element of worship. And in fact, in the Bible, worship is sometimes referred to in a shorthand way by being described as calling on the name of the Lord. In Genesis 4, when people first began to have corporate worship with each other, Genesis 4, it says, and in those days people began to call upon the name of the Lord. It didn't mean that was the first day someone said a prayer. It meant they started worshiping corporately in those days. And it was called calling on the name of the Lord. Prayer is a shorthand for what we're supposed to be doing here. Communicating with God and He communicating with us. Prayer is the model for what worship should be. A holy, heavenly conversation, a dialogue, a back and forth between what God says to us and how we respond with faith and love and praise. And that dialogue ought to ought to characterize ordinarily our worship. Prayer is a very special part, the confession says. Now, where is he getting this in the Bible? Well, in 1 Timothy, earlier in the chapter, in chapter 2, Paul says in verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says to Timothy, First of all, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth." Paul says, first of all, I want you to pray. First of all, pray. Paul gives premium importance to prayer. He says in verse 8 of chapter 2, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. I want you guys to pray. Pray in every place. Pray, 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 pray. When you come together to worship. First of all, pray, and pray a lot. Prayer dominates a worship service. And notice he gave several forms of prayer, several modes, supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings, etc., etc., etc. So there's all these different kinds of prayers we're supposed to be praying. Prayer is number one. Second element of worship 
I'll read these. Actually, I'll read the next four from the confession. Chapter 21, section 5. This confession says, The reading of the Scriptures with godly fear, the sound preaching and conscionable hearing of the Word in obedience unto God, skipping ahead, singing of psalms, that's number three, with grace in the heart, and also the due administration and worthy receiving of the sacraments instituted by Christ. So there's four. In addition to prayer from section three, that's all five. Prayer, read the Bible, preach the Bible, sing the Bible, celebrate the Bible with the sacraments. Then it says, all these are parts of the ordinary religious worship of God. Ordinary elements of worship. Let me just give you a verse to back up each one of these. So we have number one is prayer, right? 1 Timothy 2. Second here is reading Scripture. We can stay right here in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. It says, Paul says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. When we get together as a church, God wants us to pray and God wants us to listen to Him talk to us by letting His Word speak for itself. Read my Word to the congregation, Timothy. Until I come, devote yourself, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. So we should be doing that. Prayer, reading Scripture. Number three, preaching and teaching Scripture. Same verse, 1 Timothy uh, 4.13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. An exhortation is a shorthand way for them to describe a sermon. Exhortation is a word for preaching in the New Testament. Now, Paul gets even more serious about preaching in 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, verses 1 to 4. Listen to how important he thinks preaching is. He says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God... And of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, that's a lot of, in the name of all six of these, or however many that was, in the name of all this stuff, he's the Lord, he's the king, he's the judge, he's coming back in the presence of God. I charge you in the name of all these holy and sacred things to do what? Verse 2, preach the word. Preach it, Timothy. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and complete teaching. Because the time is coming, Timothy, when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate to themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Timothy, you better be constantly preaching the truth of God's Word. The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth, and that's in Scripture. And Timothy, you better be reading that Bible and preaching that Bible in church, and you better do it in season and out of season, when it's popular, when it's unpopular, when the time is ripe and when it's not. Preach that Word, Timothy. Give, it, give them the good stuff, Timothy. Really preach it to them. Rebuke them if you have to. Exhort them. Challenge them. Correct them. Do what. Encourage. Love them. Do whatever you got to do. But use that Bible. 
to make sure they don't develop itching ears that want to just hear what they want to hear. He says the time's coming when people will not be able to endure sound preaching, but they'll just be like, man, tell me the stuff that tickles my ears and makes me happy. Tell me the stuff I want to hear. Don't talk about my sin. Don't talk about... And whatever it may be, just tell me what I want to hear in your sermon, not what God wants me to hear. And he says, when that happens, people run off into myths, and they run off into falsehood and away from the Lord. So preach that word, Timothy. Preach that word. He says the same thing in Titus 2, and chapter 2, verses 1 and 15. Preach the word. And do not let anybody look down upon you for your youth. Don't let anybody shut you up because I disagree. You preach that word boldly. Read it and preach it. So the ordinary elements, prayer, reading Scripture, preaching and teaching Scripture. Number four, singing. For singing, we have to go outside of First and Second Timothy to a, a verse we actually have already preached a sermon on earlier in the series. This is Colossians three sixteen. One day you should just do a study of look at all the three sixteens in the New Testament. All right, John three sixteen is a pretty good one. Colossians three sixteen is a pretty good one too. And just do a study one day. Let's see all the good three sixteens in the Bible. And there's a lot of them. Colossians three sixteen. Let the word of Christ dwell among you richly teaching and admonishing one another, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So we should be addressing each other, not just God, but we should be addressing God first and one another as we sing a whole variety of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in our hearts to God. And then the parallel passage for that is Ephesians 5, verse 19, where Paul says, Address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We should be a people who praise who reads the Bible together, who preaches and then listens to preaching and teaching of the Bible and worship, and then we should be a place full of melody and joy and song and praise. All variety of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing with one another, addressing one another, and then addressing the Lord, but a place that resounds with the melodies of worship. That's what we should be. Fifth and final element of the ordinary elements. We got prayer, read scripture, preach scripture, sing, and then finally, the due administration and worthy receiving of the sacraments. The due administration of a sacrament means serve the sacrament the way Jesus instituted you to do it, the way Jesus tells you to do it. The due administration and then the worthy receiving, receiving with faith. And the sacraments here are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Matthew 28, 19, go into all the world, make disciples, baptize. Acts 2, 42, the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread, which is a way of referring to the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. 
That was the early church. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, the Lord's Supper, prayer. That was early church worship in Acts 2. And then 1 Corinthians 11, Paul gives more instructions about doing the Lord's Supper together. So these are the five elements, the five ordinary elements. These are the central acts of worship that God commands us to do. These should be done ordinarily. That is, they should be done pretty much every Sunday when we gather for worship. Now, there is some leeway here on number five, on observing the sacraments. Because we're not going to have somebody to baptize every single Sunday. That'd be nice. But we're not going to have someone that, to baptize every Sunday. So we're not going to be, we're not expected, like, you've got to round up somebody. You know, we'll take volunteers. Somebody want to get baptized for the umpteenth time because we've got to do it? No, we don't have to do that every Sunday. If we have people getting converted and there's lots of candidates for baptism, praise God. But if, if we go most Sundays without baptizing somebody, that's not a sin because it's not something we have to do every Sunday. So there's leeway on, this, on baptism, obviously. Now, on the Lord's Supper, it should be done very regularly and very frequently. But Paul does leave a little bit of leeway for not doing it every single Sunday. In 1 Corinthians 11... 26, he says things like, as often as you do this, whenever you come together to do this. Now, I think that assumes, I think Paul's assuming that you're doing it a lot, but not necessarily every single Sunday in that kind of language. So Paul leaves some leeway for not doing it every single Sunday. But he's not leaving leeway to do it once a year, once a quarter. It's an ordinary element of worship, so we ought to be doing the Lord's Supper very regularly and very frequently, at a minimum, the way we're doing it now, once a month. Is it a sin if you don't do communion every Sunday? I don't think it is. There's, not, there's no Bible verse for that. But it should be done frequently. I think Paul does expect the church to do it all the time. Not necessarily every single Sunday, but with a lot of regularity and high frequency. So these five elements should characterize the norm of our worship and of our worship services and our church economics. Last point this morning, we look at the occasional elements of worship. We come now to the occasional elements of worship. Occasional here, just as a reminder, occasional here does not mean that we're supposed to do them rarely. <laughs> like, ordinary means you better do these ordinarily. Occasional doesn't mean we're commanded to do them once in a while. And only once in a while. Rather, what it means is, these are additional elements of worship that God has granted us permission to add to our regular worship at our own discretion. So God's commandment is, do these once in a while at least. But if you want to do them all the time, fantastic. Knock yourself out. But you don't have to do them all the time. You just have to do them at least occasionally. That's the, that's the difference. Here's the way the confession says it. After it mentions the ordinary elements of worship, it says, besides those religious oaths, vows, solemn fastings, and thanksgivings upon several occasions, there's our word, which are in their several times and seasons to be used in a holy and religious manner. So to summarize what the confession says there, it says these 
occasional elements. They are elements that are besides the others. So they're in a different category. And they can be used on several or various occasions when the occasion calls for it. And it says they can be used according to different times and seasons. So when we do these elements, these, or, these occasional elements, we can do them at different times of the year, different seasons of the year. We can do them on different occasions when the occasion calls for it. Uh, but we don't have to do them all the time. We can if we want, but we don't have to. How often we observe and practice these occasional elements is free. It's part of free worship. It's not fully fixed. It's left up to us. So we should do them at least once in a while, but we're free to do them every week if we wanted to. So what are those occasional elements? There were four of them that the confession mentions. The first is religious oaths. Religious oaths. This, tra- this can be translated into modern day, and it cites the Old Testament here. It cites the Old Testament for all these. Religious oaths, Deuteronomy 6.13. Well, we don't do religious oaths the way they did them in the Old Testament today. Today, the equivalent of a religious oath for us would be a confession of faith. Confessing our faith together in worship. And we don't have time to go through all the verses for these, but I will list them for you if you want to look these up later. Religious oaths is about confessing our faith to one another. And actually, we see this in our text in 1 Timothy 3. After he says that we are the pillar and buttress of the truth, verse 16 says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And then he quotes a confession of faith from the early church. He, speaking of Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This was an early church confession. And Paul says, this is great indeed, we confess together is the mystery of godliness. So we can come together and we can sort of give our oath of allegiance. This is what we believe. That's why when Rick opened up the, confession, the, the Apostles' Creed, he said, Christian, what do you believe? I believe. And we make a public declaration. We are together confessing our faith. It's like we're signing with our words on the dotted line. This is our oath. This is the God we believe in and we swear allegiance to Him. Verses for this... 1 Timothy 3.16, which we just read. Another 3.16. I'm telling you, look these up. 1 Timothy 3.16, 6.13. And then especially look at Hebrews 3.1, 4.14, and 10.21-25. In Hebrews, we're told three different times, let us hold fast our confession. Let us make the bold confession. Second occasional element, vows. Vows. The way they did vows in the Old Testament in the ancient world isn't how we do vows today. So the equivalent of of making a vow today is pledging to give tithes and alms and offerings. In the Old Testament, you made a vow pledging to offer something to God. It could be yourself. It could be dedicating your son to go be a priest. It could be possessions, animals, you name it. You could vow to give something to God as an offering. So today, we don't vow to give our sheep and cats and whatever. We don't give God animals. He doesn't need them. We give God offerings, alms, 
and tithes. Not to meet his needs because he's financially a little shaky these days, but we give these things into God's service so that we can use them to meet the needs of God's people and to minister to those who need the gospel. You, when you decide to give something to the Lord, Paul doesn't say it's got to be this percentage, you know, after annual gross. Or it's got to be this much before taxes. He doesn't give you an an absolute percentage. The Old Testament percentage is 10. But Paul's admonition to us in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2 and 2 Corinthians 9, 7 is we should give as we have pledged to give in our hearts according to how God has prospered us. A good minimum is 10. It's a good rule of thumb. But you don't have to do that exactly. That's Old Testament, not New Testament. But we today would pledge, I'm going to give this much to the church in tithes and offerings this year. You've made a vow. So we should collect those vows as part of worship. That's what Paul does in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. He tells the church how they should collect the vows, the offerings. And and they do it in church. Number three, solemn fastings. Solemn fastings. Joel chapter 2 God tells the people to call together a solemn assembly to come together and to fast and to weep and to mourn and to confess their sin and to pray. Well, we can do that. We can do a solemn fasting. We don't have to literally not eat food before worship, although we could ask you to do that on occasion, to fast and pray before we come into worship. That might be something we could do on certain occasions, but it's not the norm. What do we do? What's the equivalent of this? in worship today. It would be confessing our sins together and it would be repenting of our sins corporately. We could do that by all reciting the same confession or I or someone could lead us in a prayer of confession and then hear the words of the gospel pronouncing God's forgiveness over our confession of sin and over our repentance. James 4, 8 through 10 tells us to do this. James 5, 16 says to confess your sins to one another. And 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess, if we do this confessing, God is faithful to forgive. We do that individually. Why not do that corporately, as James directs us to do? Religious oaths, which is confessing our faith. Vows, which is pledging to give tithes and offerings. Solemn fastings, which is confessing our sins as a body and repenting and hearing the gospel promise of forgiveness. Last one. The confession mentions thanksgivings. This one we can bring straight in from Psalm 107, 1 and 2, 21 to 22. And really throughout that whole psalm, Psalm 107, we can bring these occasional celebrations where we give thanks to God for special times and special events and special acts of God that He's done for us in our church, in our families, in our country, or in the world. We can have special times set aside where we commemorate something, celebrate something, and worship God for specific things that He's done. Thanksgivings. As occasion requires. So, these four are the occasional elements of worship commanded by Scripture, but not practiced by Scripture with the same frequency as the ordinary elements. That's why they're occasional. We may practice them more often, but we are not commanded to. So is it a sin if you never confess your sins in church as a body? No. But can you do it every Sunday? Absolutely. We ought to do it once in a while, but 
We can do it every Sunday. Is it, a, is it a sin not to recite a creed? No. But we can and do every Sunday. You see what I'm saying? We can do these once in a while or we can do them all the time. God leaves us a bit of freedom there. So let me conclude our sermon this way. These nine elements, five ordinary elements and five occasional elements, make up the total number of the central acts of worship commanded by God in Scripture. We may not add to or subtract from them. We don't get to command things God hasn't commanded. That's the regulative principle. God gets to tell us how to worship, and he tells us, do these nine things, do five of them ordinarily, you can do five of them at least occasionally, but do these things when you worship, and don't add anything to it, and please don't take anything away from it. Deuteronomy 12, 32. Just do what I've said. Keep it simple. Worship me the way I want to be worshipped. We cannot do anything in church other than these nine elements. Now, how we do them and the order we do them, that's another discussion for next week. But in terms of what we do, the specific actions, those are commanded by God and they're fixed in place and we can't make up new ones. That's will worship, where we make up new acts of worship that God didn't tell us to do. This is what God wants in worship, these nine things, period, full stop. Full stop. Remember, we are in God's house. So let's follow His rules. Church ek worship, church economic worship, is worship by the book. So let's give God what He wants. Let's give God what He wants. Next week we'll talk about the traditions, forms and circumstances, and how we, how we use the Bible to govern our traditions. That's next week. But for this week, let's focus on giving God what He wants in His worship. This is what pleases him. God wants obedient worship. So let's commit that that is exactly what we're going to give him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have indeed given us a clear word, many scripture passages full of clear instruction. Thank you that we don't have to just put our dim heads together and just try to come up with it on our own and just make up what kind of worship we think you might happen to possibly maybe like. Thank you that you've spared us of, of just groping in the dark for trying to figure out what we ought to do in church. Thank you that you've told us how we should worship, that you've given us clear instruction. And I pray that you would give us all eyes to see these things in your word and that you would give us a love for these things in your word and that we would relish them and, and be eager to come into this place and do them because we know, we know that they please you. And that's what we want to do. That's what our born-again hearts want. We want to please you. And we want to be most pleasing to you, especially when we come into your house to worship you. So give us that commitment and dedication and continue to open our eyes and show us how we ought to approach you in worship through your word, and we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.